It's a joy to be able to preach God's word this morning. Uh, as you just heard his word being read, Deuteronomy 4. As a church, we've been last several weeks walking through this really, really important book of the Bible. Um, very important. Uh, Jesus, as we mentioned at the beginning, this is the book that Jesus most commonly quoted and referred to in the New Testament. And so um, to talk about how significant the book of Deuteronomy is to really understanding um, sort of not just God's word, but also our place in God's world, um, Deuteronomy is really, really helpful. And so um, as a church, the way we've been approaching it is that we are, we spend a number of weeks walking through it. And this sermon on chapter 4, verse 32 through 40 is kind of our, our final one in this first phase of walking through the book. We're going to set it aside, get into Easter season, go back into 1 Corinthians, some other things we have going on, and then we'll come back to the book of Deuteronomy um, in the not-so-distant future. And so um, if you show up next week and you see that we're not reading out of Deuteronomy, that's why, okay? So one of the things we love to do is I, I really see a lot of value in making sure that we have good balance to how we preach God's word in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so oftentimes we, you'll see us just kind of going back and forth between those two because, um, because it's really significant as we make disciples of Jesus that we use the whole of God's counsel, all of his word to do so, okay? So I'm going to pray and then we'll, we'll dive in this morning. Father God, thank you so much for your word as it comes to us this morning in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Lord, I just uh, I recognize my tremendous need for you right now. Um, what a significant task to open up your word and to proclaim your word um, to your people. Um, we thank you and just recognize that this morning as that happens, that your presence, your spirit is here. And I ask that, Lord, you'd help me to depend on your spirit um, in the moments ahead. I pray that you would use this word um, that is eternal and true, Lord. I ask that you would write it on our hearts. Lord, we ask that you'd use this word to shape and to form us as your people. And we thank you for it this morning. Um, we love you. And we ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Well, for those of you who've been around here, uh, know me at all, you know that I love this time of year. Can I get an amen? I mean, hey, who... Who doesn't love looking outside and seeing things come to life, all right, from the ground, turn from, from brown to green before our eyes? I mean, it's, it's such a wonderful time of year. The days are longer, amen. The cold, dark days of winter seemingly are behind us, praise the Lord, and bright days are ahead of us. It's a great day to be alive, amen. Okay, love, love, love the spring. Another reason, again, if you know me at all, you know one of the main reasons why I really like this time of year is because of this silly thing we call March Madness, okay? <laughs> Any amens in the house on this? A few, okay, all right, a few, a few more at Central, that's okay. Just love March Madness. My wife was out of town for a couple days this week, and she came back, and uh, we're sitting on the couch one day, and she was just kind of looking at me and said, hey, what do you think we should do for the next couple of days? And I was just kind of like, I think I'm going to watch a lot of basketball, <laughs> And I have not disappointed, all right? So it's, I just love, I love everything about March, March Madness. I love just the, the basketball. If you don't want to talk about it, it's an NC, it's, it's college basketball on steroids. It's college basketball tournaments, okay? That's what March Madness is. Um, I just love everything about it. Just all the storylines that emerge, the underdogs, the upsets, the, just the good basketball. So many days filled with good basketball. Filling out a bracket and having to think through who's going to win and, and be, being totally wrong. I mean, the first time in my life I have interest in watching LSU play St. Bonaventure. Okay, I didn't even know St. Bonaventure existed. Okay, 
But I find myself watching the game because I just enjoy everything about March Madness. So many different factors, right? Injuries. A team can have a bad day of shooting and then just get totally blown out. The, the, the matchups, the, the interesting matchups that the brackets put. And then this year, of course, there's a the significant factor of COVID-19 and how that impacts tournament play and some of the, the ways that they've going about adjusting the tournament as a result. So many different factors. Yet as you watch the games, as you watch the teams and the players and the coaches, there's so many differences from one team to another. Types of offense, types of defense, the size of the team, the way they're coached, and, and their history, and how long they've been good or a part of the tournament, right? I, I didn't realize until just yesterday, 21 years since a Big Ten team won the tournament. That's, that blew my mind. 21 years since a Big Ten team won the tournament. That's pretty significant when we think about all the wonderful teams, right? As you just think about the tournament, there's so many differences with all these teams. Yet, as you watch the games get played out, what you see that is a, a thread that is shared from one team to the next is, is not just a desire to play in the championship, to be victorious when the tournament is all said and done, but you also get a strong sense of devotion and determination that these teams share as they compete on the hardwood. The devotion, you can just see it in their face. The devotion to this sport. To, in this morning's passage, as we consider these wonderful verses, what comes leaping off the pages is a similar thing for us as God's people. What we should see this morning and what Moses inspires God's people towards is to be a people who are marked by their devotion to God. Their devotion to God and his word. This morning, if there's a big idea that summarizes the, the, the sort of the theme of this text and the big idea of the message, it's simply this. Devotion determines destiny. Again, in the, in the March Madness and the college basketball tournament, all kinds of factors, and you have equal levels of devotion across the board from one team to the next. All kinds of variables, all kinds of factors. Devotion in and of itself isn't enough to win the championship. But as God's people, what we see right here before us in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 32 to 40, is that devotion does determine your destiny. That's what we'll see. Now, a quick reminder. Remember, this is a sermon. This is a sermon that is being preached by Moses. He's delivering it to God's people as they're about to take possession of the promised land. And you can just imagine God's people, Moses is standing before them proclaiming these words. And you can imagine the anticipation. What is he going to say of God's people as they listen? A couple of reasons. For one, they are about to fulfill the promise that was given to their ancestors years and years and years ago. They are getting ready for this climactic moment so far in the history of Israel by, by taking possession of the promised land. What he is about to say is incredibly significant as a result. But not just that, we saw in chapter 3 that Moses himself recognizes these are going to be his final words to his people. So their beloved leader, this man of God, that instrument that God used to deliver them out of slavery, out of Egypt, that led them through the wilderness to this very point that God used to communicate his word and his law to them. This man is not going with them. So in many ways, these are his final words. What is he going to say? What's he going to say? You can just see God's people 
sitting on the proverbial edge of their seats, soaking up every word. And in our passage before us this morning is really a summary of everything that Moses is saying in the book of Deuteronomy. It's summed up beautifully here in these nine verses. Prior to his death and in preparation for, for their life in the promised land, Moses wants to make it abundantly clear that these people must, they must remain devoted to God and his word. Whatever's waiting for them beyond the Jordan, whatever people are there to welcome them, God's charge before them is to stay devoted to him and his words. Well, his goal for them then is my goal for us right now as we preach this. There are so many parallels between us and where we are as a church and where God's people, the uncertainties that lie ahead of them. There are so many, so many question marks just as we think about leadership here at, at Parkview is, is determined to providing clarity on the direction that we're moving forward as a church. And as we do that, there are a number of uncertainties that lie ahead. Things that simply we can't predict, right? That being said, what we know is whatever it looks like moving forward for us as a people in this church, Parkview, 2021, years to come in Iowa City, that this much is got to be for sure. That we remain a people who are steadfast in our devotion to God and his word. Must be a part of what marks us moving forward. As we consider our passage this morning... As Moses tries to inspire this, this devotion within God's people, point out three things. The first thing is the unique nature. He directs their attention to God's unique nature. So the first point is the unique nature of God. The second point is the understandable response of his people. As you think about God and how unique he is, what is the understandable response of his people? Thirdly, an unbelievable promise. So, first up, the unique nature of God. And verses 32 through 40 represent really this climactic moment, not just here in chapter 4, but really in all of Moses' message to God's people. And a theme that's absolutely critical, not just for us to understand the book of Deuteronomy, but really to understand the whole of the Bible, the incomparability of God. Israel's God, Moses declares, is in a class all on his own, okay? There is never been, never, there is not, and there never will be anyone like God. He is downright unique. And because he is their God, this unique God is their God, there is a unique nature about them as a people that, that, that forms their ethical and missiological purposes as a people. God is unique because he's their God, they are unique by default. Now, if you look at the text, you'll see stylistic, sort of this uh, stylistic device of rhetorical questions throughout the passage that really drives this point home, the unique nature of God. Did any people ever hear the voice of God as you have? Has any God attempted to go and take a nation for himself? And of course, he states very directly the unique nature of God in verses 35 and 39. There is no other besides him. The Lord is God, there is no other, verse 39. Throughout the text, there are 
really, we kind of see three aspects of God's unique nature kind of come to the surface. And so I just want to highlight, what is it about his nature that makes the God of the Bible utterly unique? Number one, the God of the Bible is a speaking God. Look at verse 33. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have and still live? The voice of God speaking out of the fire. Notice that Moses says, you, as you have heard. And it's interesting because the people that are listening to Moses speak right here and now were actually not present when God spoke out of the midst of the fire at Sinai. They, they weren't the same people. This is a different generation. Yet here in verse 30, Moses, 32, Moses asked, did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard? They were not there physically, Moses' point is. You were not there physically. However, you still remain under his word, just like your fathers did before you. The word spoken to their fathers, to their ancestors, is a word spoken to them. Because God's word, we believe, to be eternal and true. This is a... This idea of a speaking God is, is, is a wonderful source of hope for us. It's a defining characteristic, not just of God, but of us as his people, that we believe and worship a God who speaks. Think about 1 Kings chapter 18. Perhaps you're familiar with the story of Elijah who confronts the pagan priests at Mount Carmel. The difference, we're told as we read the story, between the false god of Baal and Yahweh, the true God, is that Yahweh is a speaking God. Baal is not. Maybe you're familiar with the story. All, all day, these prophets, or sorry, these, these priests of this pagan God, all day, everything within their power, they're limping around the altar, crying out to their God, uh, trying to get him to, to, to reveal himself. In verse 29, listen to what it says. As midday passed... They raced on until the time of the offering to the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. This is a, these are haunting words of people who have committed themselves to worshiping a God. And as they cry out to God, the only response, silence. Nothing. Compare that to Elijah's response. When fire falls from the sky and consumes Elijah's offering, it serves as evidence that Elijah, that when he spoke, this prophet of the true God, he, that God spoke through him, he says. God is a speaking God. Jeremiah 10, 20, sorry, 10, verse 5. Jer the prophet Jeremiah compares the idols of his day to a scarecrow in a cucumber field. I ain't never seen a scarecrow in a cucumber field. I'm just going to be real with you, okay? Never seen it. I'll be all right if I never saw a scarecrow. And I've never seen a cucumber field, okay? I don't know if you have. I haven't, right? But what I know is, and what Jeremiah tells us, is that if you were to see a scarecrow in a cucumber field, what you would notice is that scarecrow can't walk and he can't talk. The scarecrow cannot speak. That's exactly what he compares those, those pagan gods of their day to a scarecrow, unable to walk and unable to speak, to the living God who does speak. Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 2 says this, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. This is one of the defining characteristics of idols. They can't speak. They've got nothing to say. 
And you compare that with a God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, who is a speaking God. He had related and redeemed these people in a way that was unlike anything the world has ever seen before or since. And his speaking to them was a demonstration of his love for them. And it is for us today as well. As you study the God of the Bible, the one true God, it is quite a remarkable thing that this God is powerful and that he is mighty. But the fact that this God chooses to graciously reveal himself to us through his world puts him in a class of his own. He does not hide himself from us. What grace of God to speak to us, to let us know what he thinks. One of his classic works, Francis Schaeffer, confronted the philosophers and the thinkers of his day. Atheists who, in, in their search for value and meaning and purpose in life, only found silence on the other end of their journey. Schaeffer challenged their pessimism and argued that, in fact, he is there and he's not silent. And this truth is a tremendous source of hope for us as a people. It's why, why we stand up here every week behind this wobbly music stand and open up this amazing book. It's because we believe and are committed to the fact that God is a speaking God. That as we consider some of the challenges that we face personally or, or maybe as a people in our nation, what Claire was just talking about before, some of the terrible things that are going on in our world right now, we, are, we have a deep belief and understanding that God has something to say about that. When he sees your brokenness, when, he, when you bring before him your sickness, your despair, maybe your depression, or your relational strife. The hope that we have as a people is that God has something to say about it. And we see that every time we open up this book. is Whatever we're facing in life, God is a speaking God. He hears your cry and he has something to say. What a, what a source of hope for us. Well, he's not just a speaking God. We see that makes him unique, but he's also an active God. Look at verse 34. Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by the mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Look at what God has done. That's essentially what Moses is saying here. Look at all that God has done. Consider how you have seen him with your eyes. Consider both the Sinai theophany and the exodus from Egypt. The whole of Israel's recent history is one mighty act of God. No other people in any other place have witnessed anything like this. Moses' description of Yahweh's activity again reveals his unique nature. His rescue of, of Israel from Egypt is unparalleled and unprecedented throughout history. And the divine power that it displayed is simply, in a single word, awesome. When you consider his activity, the way that you have seen him move with your very eyes, this God is awesome. 
God had not simply spoken to them in a unique and awesome way. He also redeemed them in a unique and awesome way. They can hear God's voice and see God with his outstretched arm redeeming them as a people. Folks, this is a fundamental principle that we believe about that the Bible teaches throughout the Bible. Right? The first thing is that God is apart from us. That the heavens are his throne. He's enthroned, highly exalted, above creation. He's mighty. He's powerful, enthroned in heaven above. That's one truth the Bible teaches over and over again. But the second truth is that while he is all of that, he's apart from us. He's also with us. He's also active here, now, among us. Listen to God's word in Isaiah 57, 15. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. He says, I dwell in a high and holy place, but I also make my dwelling here with you. This is amazing. Again, what a source of hope. That when we face, I look at a miracle right there in Stephanie. When we, when we face trials and challenging circumstances, things that we have no control over, this is why we can have hope. As we consider our moment as a church desiring for God to renew us as a people, those prayers don't fall on ears that are shut to us, but on ears that are open to us and able not just to hear our cry, but to actually do something about it. So as we confess our sins, as we lament over the condition of our hearts and our culture, God hears and God moves. He's an active God. Thirdly, he's a loving God. Verse 37. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring. All of this speaking and acting by God, we're told, is the result of his love. And it's good news for us this morning. He's a speaking God. He's an acting God. But those two things by themselves don't necessarily make him a good God, right? If he simply could speak and he could act and move but had no love, that's a terrifying thing. But the God of the Bible is not just a speaking God, is not just an acting God. What sets him apart, Moses says, is that he is a loving God. He's a loving God. This theme of love for Israel and their ancestors is unique to the book of Deuteronomy. And what's interesting as you explore this love, you see that it's an axiomatic love. While it's offered as a motivation for what God is, there is, and it, you know, if you were to attempt to explain where or why it comes from, you would be hard-pressed. It is simply self-evident. He's a loving God because he's a loving God. Because it's the reality of his heart. One commentator points out, if someone were to ask, 
Why did God love Israel and their ancestors? The only answer would be because God chose to love Israel and their ancestors. Folks, the God of the Bible, Moses is wanting to press this into his people that you will encounter other gods. There will be other people who are devoted to other gods. You stay devoted because God is unique. There is nobody like this God. So what's the understandable response? That's the unique nature. Three aspects of his unique nature we see clearly in the text. What is the understandable? How should people respond to this unique God? Well, three different ways. Just go back to each one of those ways that God reveals himself. God speaks. This is going to be hard for... It's very obvious, okay? So we should listen, okay? The God of the Bible is a speaking God. And if we are his people, we ought to be a listening people. It's obvious, right? God speaks, we listen. You see it in the text over and over and over again. Heard, you heard his words. Look at verse 34. His words speaking out of the midst of the fire. You heard his words. He let you hear his voice. Verse 36. Over and over and over again, Moses' point, he's standing up there proclaiming the words that they might hear them again. If God is a speaking God, then his people had better be a listening people. Easy enough, move on, right? Wrong. See, the problem with this is if there's one area, I would say, in contemporary, maybe even evangelical Christianity that God's people need to work on a little bit, it's this. Being a listening people. This is an area that, as a church, I think as people, that we would just constantly do well to improve and grow in. In Dietrich Bonhoeffer's classic work, Life Together, probably one of my top five books of all time, Life Together. It's an exceptional work on Bonhoeffer as he sort of describes what it looks like to live your life as God's people together. And he emphasizes the need, this, as he talks about specifically the area of ministering to one another, he talks about the need and places an emphasis on this, this idea of being a listening people. So often our temptation is to feel like, I know this is my temptation, is I feel like I'm always looking for a word to speak and not a word to hear. I want to be quick with a response. I want to be quick to talk. And oftentimes I'm slow to hear. What Bonhoeffer says is that of people who no longer, that what happens is when you, once you stop listening to one another, the next move is to stop listening to God. And to, to not listen it is, essentially leads to what Bonhoeffer says is spiritual death. When, when God's people are no longer a listening people, spiritual death and decay is the result. Now, I would say, this, now he wrote this probably, I think, in the 30s. I would say that even if it was hard for God's people to listen then, think about the challenges we have now. I mean, we are inundated constantly with noise, right? We are constantly tempted to listen to all sorts of things and not God. Uh, kind of with a, a play on the uh, food pyramid. Is that what it's called? Okay. Uh, there's a, a contemporary author named Brett McCracken who wrote a book called The Wisdom Period. And he addresses this issue, pyramid, the wisdom pyramid. He addresses this issue in that book. And basically, if you just imagine sort of the same idea of a food, the concept of a food a pyramid, the thing at the bottom of the pyramid is the thing that you ought to give the priority to. 
the, the most energy and effort towards focusing on. And he says at the very bottom of that pyramid should be the Bible. And then if you've got to go up the pyramid, the next layer where you should also give attention, but maybe not quite as much attention to the, the bottom layer, is the church and, and the tradition that's been established through the church. And, and then the next level is nature and beauty. Then as he continues to work up the pyramid, the next one would be books. And then the internet would follow books. And then following at the very top in the smallest segment of the pyramid, the, the thing that he would say is the place that you ought to give the least amount of ear to. Anybody want to take a guess? What comes, like, what, what would be just above the internet? It's, it has something to do with technology. Anybody? Related to the internet. Got to use the internet to use it. Social media, yeah. At the very top would be social media. Now, kind of what the whole premise of the book is, is like, that's, okay, now, it's not that you should just totally get rid of it, but, it, you know, compared to the Bible, like, this is how much time and energy you should be listening to God's word, not your Twitter feed, okay? But he says what our problem is in contemporary, you know, just Western world, is that we've taken the pyramid and we've turned it around, right? We've, we've done everything. We've, we've said that stuff at the top is now at the bottom, that now... We give tons of energy. I mean, we, if we're not talking, we're scrolling. You know what I'm saying? And it's a constant temptation because our worlds are filled with noise and people who are clamoring for our attention. So it's a challenge that I think Bonhoeffer recognizes to be a real threat to God's people then. And it's a real threat to us now to be a people who listen well to a speaking God. And it's important to note that, you know, look at it down at verse at the bottom in verse uh, 40. Therefore, you shall keep these statutes and his commandments that I command to you today. It's important to note that the Hebrew understanding of listening involved not just hearing, not just letting sound waves hit your eardrums. It did involve that, but it also involved doing. The Hebrew understanding of listening was to be a people who heard God's word, were shaped and formed by God's word and actually obeyed and did what God's word said. So their understanding of listening was hearing plus doing. Which means that we need to be a people who not just give our ear, but really give our whole lives to God's word as a response. Secondly, God acts, I'll speed up here a little bit, God acts so we should believe. Look at verse 35. To you it was shown that you might know. If I had my pen... In my Bible, I would circle that word, that. All of these amazing things were shown to you. God's deliverance of you. The way he provided for you. The way he delivered you. All of this stuff, the way he spoke to you, was shown to you that you might know that the Lord is God. It is one thing to hear about something. It's an entirely different thing to see it in action. When you see it in action, your belief and conviction is strengthened, is fortified. And this is what he says. He's revealed himself in this way so that it would be easy for us to devote ourselves to him because we've seen, we've tasted, we've understood that God is God and that there's none like him. It's designed to strengthen our faith. God's activity among us is designed to be a constant source of faith in our present moment. This is why we prioritize things like baptism, so that we can see God at work among us, life transformation among us. Thirdly, God loves, so we should love. Look at verse 39 again. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart. 
Again, if I was underlining anything, I would underline that phrase. Lay it to your heart. That the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. What a powerful picture. Love that phrase. Lay it to your heart. In the original language, this phrase has the sort of the meaning of, of returning. And so it's the idea of as God's love comes to you, what you are supposed to do is lay it to your heart. In other words, return the love back to God. That's the image. God loves us. He tells us as much. He shows us as much. The only understandable response is to take the love that he pours out on you and to, to turn it back to God, to lay it to your heart, return his love. At the end of the day, following Jesus, ultimately, and Jesus says as much in the Gospels, is about love. Love that came to us when we weren't looking for it. And as we receive this love, it generates within us gratitude, humility, commitment to honor and to love in return. Love, this is a biblical principle, love gives birth to love. These are truths that transform us from the inside out. Now, I'm using this word intentionally in the second point. This is the understandable response. What this is not to, to a God who speaks to listen, a God who acts to believe and know that he is God, and a God who loves to love, to be a loving people, this is the only understandable response. This is not a radical response. This is not an exceptional response. Anything that, that responds to God's love apart from love, that's exceptional. That's radical. It doesn't make any sense. The only understandable response to God's love is to turn the love back, to be a loving people. You know, later in, in Deuteronomy 6, when we get back into it, 4 and 5, um, we'll see that this, this idea is, is captured well in what's referred to as the Shema, words that would become really a daily prayer in ancient Israelite tradition, prayed in the morning and in the evening, sort of a pledge of allegiance or a confession of faith or a hymn of praise. But what it would do is it would, it would, it would serve as a constant reminder that these people, these people are a listening people are a believing people and are a loving people. And they would remind themselves of that every single day. And we would do well to remember that as well. Finally, we've seen that we have a unique God, that there is an understandable response. Finally, I want us to look at an unbelievable promise. And this is in verse 40. This is a really key passage or key verse. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today. Because of all of that, what is the appropriate response? Because of who God is? It's obedience. Just listen to his word and do it. That's what he's trying to get out of them, okay? Inspire them, motivate them towards obedience. And then again, if I had my pen, I would circle the word that. Why does he want the obedience? Why does he want the devotion? That it may go well with you and with your children after you. That you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Having seen that 
devotion to God and obedience to his word is the only understandable response to the biblical doctrine of God in scripture. Here in verse 40, it explicitly says that obedience and devotion is the only way to true prosperity. It's the key. Devotion is the key to a full and true life. Look at the text, that it might go well. This is the idea of prosperity, the idea that righteousness, this is key, that righteousness lengthens life and that sin shortens. This is an Old Testament theme. This is a biblical theme that righteousness lengthens, fills our life, but that sin works against it and shortens it. Now remember the context. Remember ultimately that what Moses is doing is he is preparing God's people to live, to occupy God's land. That, that's what he's doing. That's what these words are designed to do. He, he wants, when they cross the Jordan and get into the promised land, he wants them to prosper. He wants it to go well for them. That's what his heart is. He wants them to take possession of the land and for them to live a long and full life. And he's preparing them for that. Well, here's the deal, guys. We're not at that exact moment. There's no river that we're trying to cross, at least that I know of. There, there's no land that, that we're trying to take possession of it. No. But here's the deal. Jesus, in his time, did a very similar thing with his disciples. If you remember, and I would just encourage you to go to John 14 real quick verses 1 through 3. Before, remember, Moses is not going to be with them in the promised land. There's a very similar moment here in the Gospels when Jesus is recognizing what's ahead of him, the cross, and he's recognizing that he's not going to be able to go with the disciples and, 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 and be a part of life, and he's preparing them for what life looks like for them as he's ascended to heaven, the other side of the resurrection. He's preparing them for that moment. And listen to what Jesus says. Let not your hearts be troubled, Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I, I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. And where I am, you may also be. Folks, this is what Jesus is saying. He's preparing his disciples to ultimately have a prosperous life. He's not just preparing, he tells us, his disciples for his absence. He's actually going a step further and preparing the very place where that prosperous life will be fulfilled. Where they will experience God's presence as God's people in God's place. Which is exactly what Moses is doing in Deuteronomy. Preparing them for that exact same thing. But here's the deal. Jesus doesn't just offer us an eternal Life, a place that he's preparing for us to live long and prosperous in. He's also offering us a life right now. So here's the deal. To taste the life that Jesus is offering you even this morning, you don't have to wait to get to heaven to occupy the place he's preparing for you. Jesus says in John 10, 10, he says, I have come, the reason he came to earth was exactly what Deuteronomy 440 is saying. He has come to earth that you may have life 
and that you may have it abundantly. Ultimately, here's the catch. Here's the key that connects these passages. Ultimately, our destiny is determined by devotion. But here's the wonderful thing about that. It's not your devotion. It's Christ's devotion to you that ultimately determines and directs our destiny. Because here's the deal. Every single one of us is a mess, right? I know I am. I can't speak for you. I'll just speak for myself. We're a mess. Every day, every week, we drop the ball. We may have the best intentions to live a life holy and fully committed and devoted to the Lord, but on our own strength, we don't stand a chance. Our destiny is ultimately determined by Christ's devotion to us, by God's faithful provision in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. His demonstration to us. Jesus is his demonstration his, of love to us and for us. And as a result of recognizing his wonderful devotion to us, the only understandable response is to be a people who are all in for Jesus, who are committed to him, this loving, devoted God, and obeying his word. So let's be a church that does just that, that recognizes that we're a people who are a hot mess in desperate need of his grace and mercy. And God in Jesus Christ does not hold back. And as a result, who knows what's ahead of us, but whatever it is, sign me up if the Lord is with us, right? Let's be a people who are like that, shaped by his word, committed to him as his people. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word this morning. We thank you for um, just the, the wonderful reminder that you're a God who is just totally committed um, to your glory and to your will and that we get to be a part of both of those things. What an amazing, amazing act of grace and mercy that you would speak to us, not keep us guessing, but speak to us who you are and what you want from us and what you have for us. But we thank you also that you're a God who doesn't just sit apart from us, but who comes to us who loves us and shows us that love. Lord, we just thank you so much. We thank you so much for who you are. Help us to respond to your unique nature in the only way that makes any kind of sense, devotion and obedience and love to you. We ask these things in your name. Amen.